Welcome to the FCC Podcast. Hear all the stories, worship, and teaching from Sunday service. Want to connect with us or learn more about FCC? Visit us at FCCETown.com. This is 
So this is the time of year for scary stories, okay? It's those stories that are a little bit unbelievable, and yet there's just enough in them that makes them sound like they're possible that sometimes we want to hear them over and over and over again. It's the myths, it's the conspiracy theories, it's the ghost stories that get told. And and I'm not talking about like slasher movies and horror films and that kind of stuff. I'm really talking more about those stories that get told around a campfire. And somebody's got a flashlight, you know, that's shining up on their face. And there's a twist in the story somewhere along the way. And maybe a startling ending to the story. Those are the kinds of stories that kind of pop up this time of year. And every culture, every generation, every community has those kinds of stories. In fact, um, Kentucky itself has very specific stories that are those scary stories that are from our state. And I may or may not have done some deep diving this week into the internet versions of all of those stories just to kind of find out what some of those stories are. And there's a whole bunch of them. Um, There's Waverly Hills Hospital and the fact that people think that that place is haunted and and all the stories that have happened through there. There's, There's actually creatures that are here in the storytelling and the folklore of Kentucky. Um, There's a creature up in Louisville, uh, the the story is told, uh, it's known as Pope Lick Monster or Goatman. I don't know how you get those two names, Um, but Pope Lick Monster is the same creature as Goatman. And and this is a a creature that supposedly lives uh, on the the, the train trestle that's, that's there up in Louisville and it hides underneath and then comes out and stares into the eyes of people who are going by and tries to lure them across the tracks in front of oncoming trains. Okay, so it's not a, a great story, but that's what the story of that creature is. There's also a, uh, a goblin alien that supposedly existed in northern Kentucky. It happened all back in the 50s when Roswell and, and UFOs and all of that was all part of the story that was going around. And, and so a Kentucky version of that was the goblin alien that was up in northern Kentucky. Now, all of those stories have over time, at different times, been explained away. But with each passing generation, the story gets told again. And the explanation doesn't tend to follow it. And so the story gets to the place where it starts to be believable. And there are some people who even believe that those stories are true. But it's not just confined 
to this time of year, to October, to Halloween. And we're, we're all told some stories throughout life, and we continue to perpetuate those stories. We tell tall tales to try and explain some things to children. And so we talk about Johnny Appleseed, and we talk about Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox babe. Uh, we talk about Davy Crockett. Now, Davy Crockett was a real person, but the stories that we tell aren't necessarily true because I don't think that he killed him a bar when he was only three, okay? Now, maybe he did, maybe I don't know what a bar is, and that's the problem. But you see, these are myths, these are stories, these are conspiracy theories that are out there, and they're part of every culture, and they're part of every community, and they're part of every generation, and, and we like to tell those stories, and we even like the scary stories. But the scary part of the scary stories is when do harmless myths and stories and conspiracy theories give way to lies and unrealities and beliefs that begin to alter our version of reality and we start to believe something that isn't true and we start to allow something to twist in our mind that then actually does harm to ourselves, to our relationships, maybe even to our faith. And this isn't like a new idea. I mean, there's no doubt that we can look around at what has happened and what has transpired in the last couple of years, and we can look at some of our relationships, and we can look at some of our ideas, and we can look at some of the stuff that's around us, and we can see how some twistedness and some lies have crept in, and we've allowed things to creep into our own lives, or we feel like they've crept into other people's lives, and it's had harmful effects on different parts of us. But it's not new. It's not a new phenomenon. In fact, all the way back in the first century, there was Paul who was mentoring a young preacher named Timothy. And Timothy was a preacher in the town of Ephesus, and Ephesus wasn't a town, it was a city, and it was a hopping city. And it was a multicultural place where people were coming from all over the world, and they were coming in with all kinds of ideas, and all kinds of stories, and all kinds of conspiracies, and all kinds of myths, and they were bringing all of those things into their community, and therefore they were also bringing all of those things into the church. And so Paul cautioning Timothy said this. He said, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. Now, maybe when you hear that and you hear the idea of myths being talked about, you start to think that Ephesus is kind of close to Greece, and this is all during the, the reign of the Roman Empire, and we all remember from humanities class that there's Roman mythology and there's Greek mythology, and so maybe this is really about Medusa and, and, and Minotaurs and uh, Cyclops and Sirens, and maybe that's what this is all about when Paul says have nothing to do with myths, but those stories at this point in the first century had actually already become the campfire stories. They were already the things that nobody really believed in. They were just kind of part of their history and part of their traditions. But there are other myths. And there are other ideas that are more subtle and are more believable that work their way into our culture, that work their way into our own thinking, and they even become our accepted reality or truth. And so for the next few weeks, I wanna unpack some of these myths that exist in our culture, that exist in our atmosphere right now that exist as scary stories that are growing parts of our society. Now, they may not be ideas or realities that you embrace, but they are ideas that are believed by the world that you live in. And so you may not fully understand 
the world that's around you, or you may not fully understand the truth that has been covered up by the lie that you're listening to. Now, over the series, we're, we're going to look at a few different phrases or statements that come from and have been built from some scary stories that have been leaked out into our culture. And they have created some scary stories as well. But they started with just an idea. They started with just a phrase or just a statement. And the one for today is this, that God is within you. God is within you. Now that sounds like something really simple. Sounds like something that's not all that scary. In fact, it sounds a little bit like Far Eastern mysticism and philosophy and that it's way over there, but it isn't. The construct of God is under attack right now. And the growing story is that God isn't real. God is simply in you. And the story has its origin in your heart and in your mind. John Mark Comer, in his newest book, Live No Lies, which, by the way, is an amazing book, but it's, it's a deep one, he acknowledges that we have made a subtle but critical shift over time between what we can know and what we cannot know. Okay, the, the shift that's happened is this. There was a time where all of the education system and all of the cognitive learning was built on a foundation of knowing God and knowing God's story. And, and it's not that we were all about in our education system uh, teaching Bible stories, but it was teaching the truth that the Bible also shares. God could be known. Now, it was accepted at the time that you probably are never going to fully understand all of God, that you're not going to figure all of God out because God is too immense, but that you can know God. It's what Jesus told us. Jesus came to reveal the Father to us so that because of Jesus, we can know God. But with what Dallas Willard calls the disappearance of moral knowledge, the West, that's us, by the way, has changed the story. John Mark Comer actually quotes Dallas Willard in his book and states it this way. As the West secularized, the locus points of authority moved from God's scripture and the church to the enlightenment-based triad of science, research, and the university. This new seat of secular authority then redefined what can be known, things like mathematics and biology, and not things like right, wrong, and God. In doing so, it conveniently moved the subjects like religion and ethics into the domain of belief by which most people mean opinion, feeling, or just wishful thinking. That is not the truth of a different country. And that is not where parts of our country in the big cities or way over on the East Coast have come. That is our culture. That's what's all around us. Dr. Peter Jones has coined the difference between the known and the unknown, between what we know now and what we said we could know then, between these two different philosophies of how the world is put together, and he's coined two phrases or partial phrases that define it. And he defines them as one-ism versus two-ism. Okay, and just really quick definition. Oneism is that all is one. There's only one thing out there, and everything is an uncreated accident. Okay, and there's all kinds of theories and philosophies and hypotheses that fit into that general idea that there is just everything is just uncreated, and everything is just kind of happening and evolving as time goes on. That's oneism. Twoism puts everything into two categories that there are the created things. And then there is the creator. And so oneism and twoism are actually two different thoughts that diverge over one question. And the question is, who's in charge? 
Who is the authority? Who has the lead? Who has sway over me? And in our Enlightenment era, and even more specifically and currently, in our postmodern era in which we find ourselves now, the answer to the question, who's in charge, the majority of our culture wants the answer to be, I'm in charge. But if we view the world through the categories of created and creator, well, then it's clear that the creator is in charge. And if he's in charge, that means I'm not in charge, and that's not a story that I like. Which puts us exactly where Paul said we could be in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, when he said, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Have you ever wondered why it is that when it comes to the worship of things that it's always idols that we build? I mean, why build a golden calf? Why build a golden snake? Why have Asherah poles? Why have all these statues that are all over antiquity where, where, where people were worshiping these, the, these gods that they invented? And why is it that there are still those kinds of idols and statues being built that have multiple limbs and multiple eyes and these monstrous things that people build to worship? Why does that happen? Well, because if, if you're the one that builds the idol, and you're the one that created the God, then you're still in charge. The question that is out there, the question that we are struggling with, is this idea of whether we are in charge or whether God is in charge. If there is a creator, then he's in charge. But if we create the gods, then we're in charge. Now take the creation story for instance, okay? If there's a creator, look back at Genesis one and two. If there's a creator, then the creation story in Genesis provides us a host of distinctions that God makes in his description of the creation in Genesis chapter one and two, that he, he provides distinctions that we still follow and we still believe today, okay? Within those distinctions that God presents in Genesis one and two, he says that there is an up and there is a down. That's a distinction. There's an up and there's a down. We still follow that thought process today. God also says that there is darkness and there is light. God also says that there is land, and there is sea. God also says that there is male, and there is female. They are distinctions that God made, and he made them very uh, specifically, and the creator provided and defined those distinctions. Therefore, the one who makes the distinctions is the creator, and since the creator is the one who defines the distinctions, then the creator is in charge. But, if we can change the story, then we get to eliminate the distinctions. And if we can change the story, then we get to eliminate the creator. And if we can change the story, then the answer to the question who's in charge is that we are in charge. And so we do that by eliminating God's authority and replacing it with ours. By eliminating his authority and his distinctions that are established at creation. See, the battles that rage right now are actually battles that are over who's in charge. The battle over gender and sexuality are not, at their core, about love and acceptance. The battles are ultimately about who gets to define and who gets to make the distinctions and who's in control. And the battle that's out there over a woman's body and a baby's body and a baby's life is not actually a story 
and a question and a battle that's about healthcare or circumstances or situations. It is a battle about who gets to make the call. It is a battle over who is in charge. See, when we pursue the destruction of the distinctions that were established by the creator, what we're trying to do is remove the, the creator from the story and put him on the sidelines, and then all of his authority becomes our authority. And it's subtle. Humanity's quest for self-awareness is simply about moving God and scripture and faith and the church to the sidelines of opinion. And then that frees us up to kind of tell a different story and, and, and create a different mental map where our worldview puts us in charge and eliminates the authority of God. Now, that may not be you. That may not be the way you think. And, and you may think, yeah, I've heard that before. It's, it's never where I'm going to be. Have some thoughts changed in your mind in the last 20 years? Are there folks in your family that you are sure are rock solid on this worldview that you're holding on to and not part of what the culture is teaching? Go back to the Garden of Eden. You go all the way back to the very first moment. What was the new story? What was the scary story that the serpent was teaching? The serpent said, look, God's not telling you the truth. He doesn't really mean that if you eat this fruit, you're gonna die. He doesn't really mean that. You're not gonna die. In fact, God's trying to keep something from you. God is trying to keep control from you. It is the most ancient of lies. And our culture sees that as reality. Now, for the past six weeks, we've been in this series called um, That Follow Thing. And in that series, we were looking at the church, and we were looking at the model of the church that we read about in Acts chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Now, specifically, that's the church as it existed in Jerusalem, surrounded by uh, a Jewish foundation that believed that there was one and only true God. Okay? And so the foundation and the culture in which the church began was that. And so all of the effort that we put into Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and all of the effort that we make to try and be like that church, it is worth every part of that effort because that's the church that God wants us to be. But the culture that that church existed is not the culture that we live in now. The culture that we live in now is far closer to what we read about in Acts chapter 17. Here's that story. Acts chapter 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, okay, so Paul's not in Jerusalem anymore, he's in Greece. He was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. And he went to the synagogues to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, Paul, as he's teaching and as he's preaching, he knows because he's walked around Athens, he, he knows because he's seen all of the statues that they have and all the idols that they worship, he knows that telling them about and trying to convince them about the concept of a God, of a supernatural being that, 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 that explains some of the things happening in our world, that's not something he needs to do. They get that. But the idea of there being one and only true God, of there being one God who is the creator of all things, about there being one God who is actually in control and in charge of all things now and forevermore, that's a different place of knowledge for them. And so Paul tells them that he's walked around their city and that he's seen their incredible city and he's seen their incredible architecture and he has seen all of the statues and idols to all of their gods. And he points out that he even came across an altar that was designated to an unknown God. And so he starts there. He says, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. 
Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. This is the story that Paul begins to unpack for them, that he explains to them that, that, that there is a creator and there is an authority and it's not you. And then Paul concluded his speech with a story about authority and a story that is the same story that we need in our culture today. Here's what Paul said. He said, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And here's how that story that Paul was telling into that culture 2,000 years ago is the same story and the same setting that we're in right now. And here's why all of it matters. And here's why all of it is so scary. Because ultimately, Paul was bringing four things to the forefront. Three things. Couldn't count my fingers. Three things to the forefront. And they're the same three things that still baffle us today. They are the same three things that all of us, whether we believe in Jesus or God or faith in church or whether we're, we're, we're believing in other things, all of us have to contend with these three things. And the three things are these. Sin, suffering, and salvation. Now sin is at its most base form simply missing the mark. If you believe in God and if you are a follower of Jesus, then missing the mark is sin. And, and, and that standard and that expectation, that mark that we're shooting for is defined by God and it's defined by God all the way back in God's law. And we know what the perfect life is supposed to look like and so we know that we can't meet that perfect life and we sin. But if you don't believe in God or you decide that God's not in charge and you're in charge, th then I guess that sin is defined by missing the mark that you set. And you're the one that sets the ex expectation, and you're the one that sets the standard, and you're the one that defines what you're aiming for. But let me ask you this. Have you ever let yourself down? Have you ever disappointed you? Have you ever not met your goals? Not lived up to your expectations? Maybe it was because you overslept. Maybe it was because you just decided to be lazy. Maybe it was because you got too drunk the night before. Maybe it was because the relationship that you were trying to make work, you decided you just didn't want it to work and so you let it collapse. Maybe it's because what you set out to do, you just don't actually have the capacity to do. Or maybe your temper got in the way, or, or maybe you said something you shouldn't have said or done, did something you shouldn't have done. Whatever the case, have you been to that place where you have frustrated and disappointed yourself? Me too. And so what do you do when that's what sin is? Well, one of the ways that you deal with that is that you just change the name. And we decide that sin isn't sin, sin's just a mistake, okay? So if it's just a mistake, well, then I... I made a mistake, okay, I, I shouldn't have stayed up so late, I shouldn't have got drunk the night before, I shouldn't have blown up in that relationship, I, I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, it's a mistake, I learned from my mistake, and I try and live on, no harm, no foul. 
which works out just fine as long as it's your mistake and you can handle your mistake and you can figure out how to navigate out of your mistake. But when your mistake becomes the mistake that you do against me, I should still be able to call that sin against me a mistake. But what do I do when you do something against me that no longer feels like a mistake? It feels like something a lot bigger than a mistake. Who gets to make the call? Who gets to determine what's a mistake and what's more than a mistake? Who's in charge? See, it works out really, really well until it doesn't. And then there's suffering. There's suffering that's happening all over the world. And so when it comes to the idea of suffering, what do you do with the huge amounts of suffering that we hear about and see happening, whether it's on the news or stories that we read, when we hear about suffering that's happening to entire groups of people and classes and generations and, and, and races, and, and we want to kind of speak out and, 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 and cry unfair to those moments. And then what do we also do with suffering when that suffering becomes far more specific and individual and it shows up at our front door? And we're experiencing suffering that hurts. Where, where do we turn to deal with suffering when it gets to our front door? Now, the Stoic, and the Stoics weren't some ancient group. Stoics still exist today. The Stoic would say that if you're experiencing pain because of suffering in your life, that's all in your head. Because suffering is just your perception of pain. And so when it comes to suffering, you've just got to figure out a way to get on top of it and not let it bother you so much and shake it off, let go of it, and move on, which sounds like a great idea philosophically, and in theory, that sounds like it would work out until your suffering gets real. See, when people are viewing suffering that's happening on the other side of the world to other people that aren't connected to them, when they see the stories or they see the pictures or they see the video and they see that suffering and they can't make sense of that suffering, the answer is there must not be a God. But then when the suffering comes to your front door, in desperation, those same people show up at church. And then there's the salvation piece. See, when it comes to salvation, there's really no way to save yourself, and we know that. So the only thing to do with salvation is to decide that there's nothing else beyond here, that this is all there is, so just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And if you experience suffering, and if you experience mistakes from other people that really, really hurt you, if you experience something that brings you pain, then just figure out whatever you have to do to numb the pain. Just do whatever you have to do to numb the suffering and not deal with the suffering and just get past the suffering so you can move on. That ultimately what we're trying to do is just survive until it's over. Because the truth is, if we're in charge, when you play that all the way down the road, there's no gratification to be found and there is no peace. But there is another option. There is another option to sin and suffering and salvation. And that story and that idea and that truth is found in one name, Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life. And he came and walked among us and lived among us and experienced the same kind of suffering that you and I feel. And then the suffering that he experienced was the ultimate suffering because in his sinlessness, he still experienced an excruciating, painful execution on a cross. And he did that so that through the cross, your sins could be forgiven and salvation could be found through him. And that is the true story of grace. You see, it's attractive to think that you're in charge. It is appealing, it's alluring for all of us to think that we are in control, that there's nothing that you need but you. 
okay? That you can actually learn enough, that you can research enough, that you can study enough, that you can know enough to find peace. But the problem is this, experience after experience after experience that all of us have had where we put ourselves in charge has left us on the side of the road bruised and bleeding. And we find ourselves lonely and alone and isolated and hurting. Why? Because guess what? You're not in charge. And you were never meant to be in charge. In fact, us in charge, (laughs) that is a scary story. But it is a faulty idea that our world believes and that our culture accepts as reality. And when we are in charge, We listen to the stories and we build the stories and we create the stories that build a different mental map so that eventually our worldview is drastically different than knowing our God and knowing that our creator is in charge and that he has a story where your sin and your suffering is turned completely upside down. because of his grace that saves you. It is a true story amidst all the lies that has to be told to our culture and in some of our cases needs to be told once again to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you have saved us from ourselves. But that did not stop us from working very, very hard to write another story where we could be in charge. And time and time and time again, we have discovered that us being in charge is a horrible idea. But we continue to do it. And the more we do it, and the more we listen to the stories, and the more we listen to the lies the further away from you we get and the further away from reality we find ourselves because reality will not bend to the lies of this world no matter how many people believe in them. But you came to teach us truth. You came to show us the way. You came to deal with our sin and deal with our suffering and deal with salvation in a way that only you, our creator, could do. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you for his suffering. We thank you for his forgiveness and his grace offered through the cross and an empty tomb. And we thank you that because of that grace, though there is sin and though there is suffering, there is also salvation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me this morning. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as the leader of your life, you don't know Jesus as the one who has covered over your sins, not mistakes, sins. And you don't know him as the one who is prepared to help you navigate through life. If you don't know him that way, today can be a day that you say yes to Jesus. Today can be a day that you are baptized in his name. Or maybe that's something that you've already done, but there's an opportunity that that you need to connect with a community of faith here at First Christian Church. And maybe that's a decision that you need to make this morning. We have folks who will be here to talk with you and pray with you about any of those questions and those decisions. And we encourage you to come as we sing together, as we, those who are following after Jesus, those who believe the reality of our God and his grace. Lift up our voices in praise and worship to our creator and our king. Let's sing together.
Oh. 